welcome everybody to the Magic Beans podcast. This is episode number 27, which is the first of our Evergreen series. Tonight we have Cracker and Chewy, and they're going to take you through sideboards, so we hope that you enjoy. Thanks for a little intro there, Shorty. Uh, today, it's uh, Chewy here with Cracker on the line. G'day, Cracker. G'day, mate. Uh, we've got uh, something a little bit different for you. Uh, we are kicking off our list, our series of evergreen topics. Uh, evergreen being a topic that uh, doesn't, we don't talk about any current events, nothing about metagames or anything like that. Uh, just talking about some fundamentals. And these are designed for you to be able to go back to at any time and, uh, and listen or you know, if you've got a friend that you're just introducing to magic and one of these concepts come up, uh, you'll be able to go, hang on, the beans spoke about that. Uh, so, yeah, our Evergreen series. And uh, we're going to kick that off with, uh, we're going to talk about sideboarding tonight. So, what do, you, what do you think about when you think about sideboards, Cracker? I don't know, man. I just played best of one on Arena. So, what's a sideboard? <laughs> That's actually something I want to talk about. So when I think sure. sideboards in you, I think um, like Leyline of the Void. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so sideboards, man, it is one of the most powerful and challenging aspects of our game, right? Which it is, really is what makes it, which what makes it so amazing. And the the things that I think about are ways to improve the matchup that I'm in and ways to push through my game plan. So it's 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 a matter of the deck I'm playing and kind of how I can achieve my goal through whatever it is that you're doing against me. I 100% agree with that. And I, I think that's a, a really good place to start. One of the things I enjoy about sideboarding is it's almost like a little mini game where you... Uh, bringing in things, but you're also factoring in, or what's my opponent bringing in? And we'll get into that a little bit. So I guess uh, a little bit of the agenda uh, for for this episode is we're going to talk about some fundamentals, um, like what is a sideboard and why we have them. Uh, and then we'll uh, give some advice on on how to sideboard. Uh, and this will be name, uh, so aimed more at the newer player, uh, sort of identifying uh, the matchup and, and what cards are good, uh, and then uh, how to build uh, a sideboard. And then uh, we'll get into a couple more advanced topics as well. But uh, yeah, I think the best of one on Arena is a uh, uh, a really valid point because it's something that has kind of made people step away from from sideboards but uh if you're going to go to your fnm if you're going to if you're going to graduate from arena to to fnm then uh you're going to need a sideboard or you're going to be at a distinct disadvantage if you don't have a sideboard uh so they are optional but uh if you are going to play in a tournament i I do recommend having them so yeah i i suppose we start with what what is a sideboard? How many sideboard cards? How many cards are, are in your sideboard? Let's start with that one. There is a, a maximum of 15. So, ah. you can have less, but don't, right? There's just- What's your, the point your, of having less, right? Yeah. E- exactly, right? Yeah. So, it is a maximum of 15. Um, standard rules apply. So, in your deck of 75, and quite often you'll hear us talk about the 75, and that's a really good way to look at building a deck is as an entire group of cards rather than like a main deck and a sideboard but there we go hot side- tip number one that's a good that's a good one yeah yeah 
So, um, but sideboard cards are usually more situational, right? So, they're designed for- They're more narrow. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like you'll, you'll see in, in draft videos and things, you'll talk about taking like a plummet, right? Which is a, a targeted removal spell for flyers that you put in your sideboard because you don't know if your opponent's going to be playing flyers. And then when they do, you can bring it in. So, it's a really good sideboard card. But the, the standard rules apply. So, you can only have four of any one card across your 75. So, you can't have, you know, four lightning bolts in your main deck and two more on the sideboard. That's not allowed. Well, of course, if, if that was allowed, you'd have four more. But, yeah, that's beside the point. Yeah. I mean, you just have eight in your main, wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, harken back to my very early days of Magic, but it's because they've got different arts, right? Anyway, that's a, that's a story from yesteryear. Uh, so, uh, the, the function of a cyborg is effectively to make it's to make competitive games more even. So, the function that they serve is you, you'll have two decks that have two distinct strategies and each strategy, you know, the nature of the game, each strategy will have strengths and weaknesses. And the sideboard gives you options to, as you mentioned earlier, either to strengthen your strategy against the opposing strategy or to hinder their strategy. So uh, the classic example is uh, in formats that have a lot of artifacts uh, to have some artifact removal, some shatter type effects in the sideboard because, uh, you know, if your opponent's playing a, a, a Lucky Clover or a Cranial Plating or a, a Soul Ring, whatever the, whatever the offending artifact may be, having a way in your sideboard to destroy that artifact means that that artifact isn't going to dominate the game. Now, if not everybody is playing that particular archetype with all of those artifacts, then, you know, you don't want to have those cards in your main deck, in your 60, because they will be dead in other matchups. So, uh, it means that, yeah, it gives you options and uh, they're there to, yeah, make the game more enjoyable, even the field a little bit. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can also have a, uh, a little bit of a mini game, uh, within a game within a game where you can try to psych out your opponent. And that's something I always enjoy. It's like, oh, I know my opponent's going to bring in all of their artifact destruction. Well, maybe I'll bring in something to counter that or I'll just take out my artifacts. So, which kind of brings us to like that next point of how do you sideboard? So you have to present a minimum 60 card deck at the beginning of any game, right? So, yep. yeah. So that's, so that's actually an important point because sometimes you might want to, you know, bring in more cards than you, you take out and that's very difficult and there's, uh, it'd have to be a very, very specific case for that to happen, but uh, it is possible to do. It's not something I recommend, but it is possible to do. So, so let's, um, let's say you and I were, were playing a game cracker Let's mm. let's let's call it modern, sure. and you're playing Living End, and well, fancy that. Yeah, and I'm playing Eldrazi Tron. Okay. Uh, so uh, you are playing uh, a graveyard based deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would probably take out some some cards that you know I would, I would try to identify some uh, some weaker cards 
in, in the matchup, probably some of the slower cards because your deck uh, on its fastest turn would be a, a faster deck than mine. Uh, I would be relying on the disruption. So I might take out um, some of my top end cards and I would bring in some Tormod's Crypt because it's a zero mana artifact that can exile your graveyard. Knowing what you know about Eldrazi Tron, what would you bring in against me? So you mentioned the the Duke plan, as you put it. And I actually, like, biases aside with Living End and how much experience I have with it, it it's an interesting um, – I, I think it's an interesting deck to study in this because – because of the nature of the deck, right, it is effectively an all-in combo deck based on reanimating creatures from my graveyard. So, I know that decks like Eldrazi Tron play both Relic of Progenitus and probably Tormod's Crypt. And if there's a lot of graveyard stuff, then they can even play Leyline of the Void, right? And so, there are a whole suite of options that are there. So, as the Living End player, I have a couple of choices. One, I know that in every Game 2 and Game 3, people have graveyard hate against me right? It is just the nature of the beast because it effectively turns off the primary axis of my deck. Yes. So, in my sideboard, I have a number of options around destroying artifacts and enchantments. And the level one play is to go, I'm going to bring in these removal spells, these very specific targeted removal spells to push through my a game plan against what you're doing, right? Okay. And so that's like the first thing. And then I would look at some of the cards and go, okay, well, I can cut things like Fairy Macabre, for example, because not many of your creatures are going to go to the graveyard, so I don't have to worry about interacting against that. So there are a few specific cards that I would be looking at. And when you're playing, and it's difficult to do, and it really comes with knowing your deck very well, but it's when I'm looking at my hand and the way that the first game plays out, regardless of win or lose, there will be cards that get stuck, right? There are cards that just sit in your hand and there is like, there is no space for this to be good. So I would think, okay, well, this is a card that I can safely cut because I know that I'm, you know, it doesn't do what I need to do in this matchup. It's for something else. So that's kind of the first thing in terms of identifying what things I want to take out. And then that's like the level one play for bringing in cards to push through my combo. I just want to circle back on that because when I speak to uh, newer players, people are pretty quick to identify what needs to come in. That's the easy bit. That's the easy bit. But identifying what needs to come out, I I think, is, is where a lot of the skill and of sideboarding comes in. And some of that just comes down to experience. But if you're struggling with sideboarded games where you're like you know you don't know what to don't know what to take out i think uh and this may be a common thread to this episode is always default back to thinking about archetypes so you can think about specific cards but uh if you're unsure on your sideboard plan sorry and i I will tangent here a little bit joel sorry uh you know me shocker identifying archetypes i think is really important in I think maybe episode 12 of our podcast, Scott the Blaster Boy came to a, uh, a modern uh, PTQ and, mm-hmm. um, and some of the feedback was he, he really struggled with the sideboarding. And it's kind of, that's some of the um, uh, inspiration to, to do this particular episode. But yeah, the advice that I would give is don't think about, oh, this person played this land or they played that creature. Just go, what was the deck trying to do now with decks like living end 
uh, it's really easy. As you said, it's an all-in deck. Like, it dumps up a whole bunch of creatures in the graveyard and then it, like, puts them into play. But some decks are a little more subtle in what they uh, are trying to do. M- most decks. <laughs> most, mo- yeah, most decks are more most subtle are than more subtle. that. Uh, but, yeah, the... Uh, uh, and that comes down to it's like, okay, well, what what are the archetypes? And we did a whole podcast episode on archetypes, so you can go back and listen to that. But, you know, aggro, uh, mid-range, control, and combo are the, the sort of four archetypes. They're, they're the pillars, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're, they're, if you think of those as like a range, decks can be, you know, uh, along that, that axis. You know, it might be a... A combo control deck, uh, and I think of the fires, the Jeskai fires deck uh, in standard uh, currently, where it, it does a whole bunch of stuff to stay alive with you know some sweepers and teferis and stuff, and then just does like this combo thing and just like twenties you. So that would be a combo control deck uh, as an example. So you would go, okay, well, what axis does my deck best fight that on? Am I better off fighting against the control side or am I better off fighting against the combo axis of that deck and that can inform your decisions and your card choices of, of what to bring in and what to and importantly and I, I did get back there in the end um, of what to take out so it's like okay I'm going to fight the combo of, of this deck so you, I'm going to go after the the key card of Fires of Invention so uh, you want to identify cards that that do that. You want to you want cards that deal with enchantments. You want cards that deal with you know particular permanents, whether it be no matter what they are. You want a way to deal with big creatures and, and things like that. So if you can't, you know, you've also got to have the tools in your deck in the first place in your seventy five to deal with that. So uh, absolutely. And so one of the things that kind of goes along with thinking about archetypes is understanding how you are going to win against each of these archetypes, right? And so you go, okay, I'm playing against a control deck and I'm a mid-range deck, okay? So in, in that scenario, you would look at what you're doing and you would say, can I go longer than a control deck? No, right? You're not going to have the tools to do that. You're not set up to draw more cards, to grind more value. You'll have more planeswalkers. They'll have more interaction, right? A control deck wants to just drag you as long as it possibly can, as many turns as it can, and it'll kill you with like a Castle Arden Vale or something like that. Some inevitable win condition that you can't compete with. So, as a mid-range deck, you go, okay, well, in this case, what I need to do is I need to be faster. I need to get under the counter magic. I need to pressure them with cheaper threats and bring in these things that I know are going to cause them to react to me and not let them execute their game plan because modern magic is a very assertive game. You can't just let your opponent do what they want or you will lose. I think so you, just, you need to I think you just gave us hot tip number two mm-hmm. where in games two and three you want people reacting to you. You want to be on the front foot. You want to dictate the terms of which that game is played on. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that could be uh, you want to be the reactive person and drag the game on if you're the control deck. And uh, we did a, a stream, um, you and I, a little while ago, and I was playing... I was playing the Jeskai Fires deck and there was a, a big, uh, a mid-range deck, another mid-range deck that went bigger. And it was like, what do I do? I keep losing to it. We had some discussion and getting under it was the uh, the best 
strategy that we could come up with. And that meant mm-hmm. that out of my sideboard, there were cheap, um, hasted uh, creatures and and counter magic to protect them. And that, that, that became an effective strategy. So it's a, uh, it can be a little bit of a game of cat and mouse where they might go, oh, they're going to bring in Robber of the Rich. I'll bring in this sweeper. But it's a, I, I think your point, I guess, is that is a really good one in having a, a proactive sideboard plan is often really good because you want to dictate terms. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, good point. Really good point. So, so then I think we're we're still talking about cutting cards and things. And it's, uh, again, it's a matter of understanding what's in your deck. And at at various given points, you know, thinking, gee, I really hope I top deck this card, right? I hope I top deck um, Fry to kill that Teferi or, you know, Ruinous Path or something like that to interact with this or Murderous Rider. I want to I want to kill a big creature. And so, if that's in your deck and you're trying to draw towards it, then you know that, hey, that's not a thing that I should be looking to take out. But if it's not in your deck, then obviously that is a card that you're wanting to, to bring in from your sideboard. So, it's really kind of at every given point in, in the game, not only, and this is why magic is so hard, right? And this is why sideboarding in particular is so hard because it's so easy to not think beyond the turn you're playing or the turn after that. And it's like, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and talk about this because clearly I'm an expert, but, you know, it's, it's something that you, is difficult to do all the time. So, it's, it's a matter of trying to be mindful and just thinking, well, what am I drawing towards? What do I need to kind of have? And then when you, you know, you pull that, you know, six mana planeswalker off the top against mono red and you're on four, then you know that's probably one of the things that you should be looking to take out. So Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. I think that's a, a, a really good point. I knew there was a reason why I asked you to do this episode, not some of the other beans. Uh, you're making well, a lot of sense. It's really good. So I think maybe what we could do, we talked sort of a little bit of sideboard theory. Uh let's talk a little bit about some uh practicality uh where you and I are sitting down in, in, you know, that hypothetical match that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just lost game one um, because, um, yeah, yeah, you, 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 had a, uh, you had a whole bunch of, uh, you know, you put 20 power on the battlefield on turn three and uh, that, was, that was all she wrote. So, you know, I, I pick up my, my permanents and uh, I shuffle them up and I, I reach into my deck box, into, into my sideboard, uh, and I, I go, right, I, th- I think I want this... Uh, this Tormod script and, and I want this Relic of Progenitus. Uh, what do I do from there? Man, that is a tricky question. It seems like such an easy thing to say. You just shuffle the cards that you want out of your sideboard to the front. You put them on the front of your deck. You go through your deck and pull out the cards that you don't want. You make sure that you've got 15 cards in your sideboard at the end of the process. And then you shuffle up and present, right? So hot tip number three. Always yep. count before you start any game, including game one. Always count that you got fifteen cards in your sideboard. I, I think that's a, it's a, a really important thing because it's so easy for cards from your sideboard to accidentally get mixed up in your main deck. So if you count sixteen or fourteen, you know you got a problem. So before you actually present that deck, yeah, make sure you've got, or you've dropped a card somewhere. Uh, so yeah, double check that you're actually presenting a legal deck. So hot and, tip, and top actually, number three. More, more than just counting them, check them. 
because I have certainly had games where I have forgot to de-sideboard after my last match. And so if the first thing you do is pull out your deck, put it down, pull out your sideboard and flick through it, count them you should know every card that's in your sideboard it seems daunting initially but once you've used it a few times you'll you will remember your deck list like and then you'll see like a card that clearly is from your main deck that should be in there and then you'll be like oh didn't de-sideboard and then you spend that extra you know a few seconds fixing it because otherwise you know there's judge calls and things like that and you know like it, it can get messy quickly uh, so absolutely and in 17 years of playing tournament magic the times that and that that has happened more than once to me. Uh, I've said to my opponent, "Sorry, I haven't de-sideboarded from the last match," and every single time my opponent goes, "Been there, man. No problem. Take your time." So don't don't feel bad about that. Uh, and the, I guess the key there is don't just start like messing around with your deck. Make sure you communicate with your opponent. Make sure they know what's yeah, going on. Absolutely. And if you do forget, call a judge because if you get busted thinking oh it doesn't matter they won't notice or you know like it's you know it's not a big deal absolutely it is a big deal so absolutely and calling a judge will be a whole nother episode um yeah yeah correct um so 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 that's the the level one option right how how deep do you want to go down this rabbit hole well I'm, i'm more interested at the moment in like the actual physical logistics of of, mm-hmm. of what to do we can we can talk about uh, a little bit more theory but for someone who's like okay i you know i see lists posted on you know 50 deck dumps or on goldfish or whatever magic source beans of discord magic beans <sighs> discord yeah exactly you know those premium places that you can get your deck techs yeah so do you uh, but you, you don't, you've never sideboarded before. You've just, you know, played best of one on Arena or, or played with some friends at the kitchen table and you're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to, I've bought my Challenger deck and uh, I, I'm going to rock up to FNM, you know, I, but I've never actually sideboarded ever before in my entire life. So, mm-hmm. I, so putting sort of that lens, like looking at it through that lens. So you're a brand new player, you know, you've got a brand new player, you've just teaching. It's a, it's your daughter who's going to her first event. How do you explain sideboarding to her, I guess, is where I'm going with it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a a matter of putting into practice all of those steps that we just talked about. So, identifying the three cards that you want to bring in because they are specifically good against the deck that you're playing against or four or five or whatever the number is. And, you know, sometimes your deck will be really, really weak to a particular strategy. So, you'll have heaps of sideboard cards to, to strengthen you up against that and you'll take a whole bunch out. So it's literally a matter of exchanging some number of cards from your sideboard into your main deck and then going through and cutting out the cards that you don't need to um, to make sure that you're, you know, evening your deck up against so it's 60 cards. And then you put them back into your sideboard. Again, check that you've got 15. You make sure that you put it into your deck box and that that is clear of your playing area. You do need to be very careful that you're not potentially mixing things up, right? Absolutely. And and then give your deck a good shuffle and then continue mm-hmm. with the normal game where you uh, you know, you present your deck and your opponent can give it a cut or a shuffle and, and, and away you go, you're playing magic. So I think that's you know, from a from as you said, a level one uh, thing, I, I think that's a, a really good description because it's one of those things where uh, to experienced players, uh, it's something that is you don't even think about doing it. You just 
reach for your sideboard at the end of game one. Uh, but for, for the newer players, it, it's something that uh, is a skill that and habits that need to be developed. And uh, the different things work for different people. Some people want to count the 60 cards in their main deck. I just find it easier to you know, do 20% of that and, and just count to 15. Yeah, correct. I do the same. <laughs> so especially if it's a, a longer day uh, at, a, at a larger tournament, it, it's something that you need to do and you need to develop. Uh, it's not something that you'll you'll pick up right away. And that's the not only just the, the level one mechanics, but also some of the more advanced theories and, uh, and options when it comes to sideboarding. So one of the cool things about sideboarding is it's actually the only time during a game of magic, during a match, you can actually consult notes. So you will hear people talking about sideboard guides. Or trying to and charge you for sideboard guides. Or don't try, buy or sideboard charging guides. You, yeah, yeah hot tip number four, don't buy sideboard guides. <laughs> you can get them for free. And so that will, depending on, on where you get them, like we all look at a Twitter feed called Arena Deck Lists, right? There's um, usually a bunch of very high ranked mythic players in, in the arena ladder or, you know, the tournament results and things like that. And they'll quite often have very brief descriptions of play draw, which we'll get into, I'm sure, and mm-hmm. then in and out. And so it will say you're on Jeskai Fires and you'll be playing against Mono Red and you'll have like in Deafened Clarions, out, you know, Cavalier of Gales or something like that. And it will be as simple as that. And so you, as the players, are allowed to have printed notes. You're not allowed to have electronic devices. They're not legal during, you know, um, tournaments. Can't look at your phone, people. I'm sorry. Can't look at your phone. Can't use it to keep life or anything like that. You can't look up gatherer for oracle texts. You call judges and things. But you're allowed to have either handwritten notes or or printed pages of information. And that can be as comprehensive as you want. If you want an essay, don't have an essay, um, about like what you should be doing and what you should be, you know, bringing in and out. Like if your opponent has, you know, whiteboarded basics, then you should sideboard differently because, you know, clearly they're, you know, a wonderful individual. What, but, what, um, what, what about whiteboarded <laughs> Shivan Reefs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can have notes and do, right? Because you have all of the time leading up to the, the, the moment you sit down for your first match, you have all of that time to prepare. and. If you can memorize it, that's great, but don't put that burden on yourself unnecessarily. So, like, I will quite often, and particularly with a deck that I'm not super familiar with, I will find out, you know, what other people think are good strategies, or I will talk through, and we've done it with the beans, like, we will quite often share our sideboard guides as to, like, hey, in this matchup, I think I'm weak to this, and I want to bring in this card and this card, what do you guys think? And we'll, we'll share feedback, because it, you've got access to a huge amount of knowledge from a whole source of people. The internet's an amazing thing. It is. And so, don't... We we talk about mental fatigue and, you know, available cycles or brain capacity, however you want to talk about it. And if you can just pull up a piece of paper and look at it and go, here's the things that are good in this from my experience and here's the things that are bad, then it saves you some effort, right? And And even, even like, to expand on that a little more for a newer player... Uh, going back to our earlier point about identifying archetypes. So, don't you don't have to go, okay, deck A, deck B, deck C, deck... You can go aggro, control, mid-range, combo, like, and just have a, a higher level. You can, you can be as granular and, and get right into the detail as you like, but if you are new to magic and new to a format, I recommend... 
having a cyborg guide that's based on archetypes. So to, just to reiterate my earlier point, sorry to cut you off. No, absolutely. It's a good, it's a good point. And then you need to very clearly make sure that you put that information away because, again, not allowed to refer- reference anything in-game. So you can't have strategy notes or anything like that. Another point here is you are allowed to take notes during a game. So if you are trying to work out what your opponent is doing or if you have a card, a discard spell, right, that lets you, you, you play Thought Erasure or Thought Seize or something like that and you get to look at your opponent's hand, you're allowed to write down the cards that you see and you can use that information in your sideboarding to help you make decisions. That's information you're allowed to have access to. And in fact, I think that's hot tip number, I think five we're up to. If you watch the finals of a Players Tour, Mythic Championship, Pro Tour, whatever we're up to, and you see the best players in the world going at it and one of them uh, has a way to reveal that information via a discard spell or something, they will write that down. And so if it's... If it's good enough for somebody playing at the highest level to do it because it helps them, then that's a no-brainer for, for the rest of us, right? There's, there's so. a reason that they actually reveal those cards in Arena, right? It is, it is useful information, and they have specifically done it so that you don't have to write it down, because otherwise, people would be. Yep. And, so and it, we've all been there where we'll walk into a card that we actually knew about from, from earlier in the in the game, in, in that match, right? Where it's Absolutely. like, oh, I knew they had that lightning bolt. Why did I go to three? You know, and it's a, um, if you'd written it down and for, and like people retain information in different ways. Some people just have that, like, I'm just going to remember they're going to have that. Um, some people will go back to their piece of paper and, and every turn, every two turns and go, oh, that's right. Oh, and oh, they, they played that swamp. I'll, I'll cut that off. Oh, they played that creature. I'll, you know, put a line through that. Uh, for me personally, I find I retain information really well if I write it down. So for me- Yeah, it just it, helps bed it in there. Yeah, the, right, the, the actual act of writing it down on my, on my piece of paper, on my, on my notepad or whatever I'm using is often enough for me. And it's there if I need it. Uh, to, to refer back to later in the uh, in the game, but uh, it's also uh, embedded, yeah, yeah, in in my short term memory because I've taken the effort to actually write it. So, uh, and again, that I've realised that through experience. But write it down is, is yeah the 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 best advice we give you in that space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Moving on to the um, to the sort of level two. Of, uh, of sideboarding. So, level, yeah. level, level one, identify the archetype. Mm-hmm. Level two, uh, for me, is identifying the important cards. So, if your opponent is, is playing a, a deck that is built around a particular strategy that, that is one card... They have to have uh, a particular ramp spell. They have to have a particular planeswalker. They have to have fire's invention, whatever it might be. Like that's the key card in the matchup. What do you? What strategies do you have in your sideboard to to counter that particular that particular key card? So whether that's a way to remove that card, to counter that card, to discard that card, or a a way to change up your deck enough to fundamentally just be able to ignore the card. So there, there are a lot of different options available there. So uh, can you think of some examples of, of what that might be, Joel? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I guess a really good way to 
think about which cards are important is learn deck names, right? You're playing against a deck called Teema Clover. Guess what card is important? I don't know a magic card called Teema. Okay, so Teema is some color combinations, and we'll have that in another cast. (laughs) But there's a card called Lucky Clover, right? So if a card, my deck is called Living End, right? And the card it plays is called Living End. We're super, super inventful, right? There used to be decks called like Cheerios and weird breakfast cereals and things like that. But for the most part now, you'll find that decks get referred to by a card or By their namesake so, card, right? Co- correct. Yep. And so it really becomes very easy to... The reason we name them that is because that is the fundamental either engine of the card or like the most powerful element of what your what your opponent is trying to do so it, it, with the deck that chewie's been playing a bunch is jeskai fires so jeskai refers to the colors so i know that he's playing red white and blue um used to be called america back in the day don't know why australia's got red white and blue in their flag too <clears throat> just saying i like I'll, french people are nice they, they are yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. there's uh, there's lots of them but you know america <laughs> america yeah. um we love you Western Bulldogs for any AFL fans. Uh, yeah, 2020s AU, just saying. Anyway, So, on. the other part of that is called Fires. And so, I know that if he plays a card called Fires of Invention, Invention, his deck is optimized to get the maximum amount of value out of that. So, as we were saying, I would go, okay, well, Fires of Invention, he played it in game one. Even if I've never seen it before, you can identify that it was a really powerful strategy because the turn after that, he played two five drops and gave them haste and slapped me for 16, right? Yeah. So, that's that's a thing that happens. And how did he do that? Because his card let him cheat on mana. So, I identified that if I want to interact the most profitably against his deck, I need to bring in some cards that deal with enchantments, enchantment removal. So, you know, there are a number of different cards and approaches of how to do that. But you kind of have to look at, again, by interacting with your opponent, and you'll find that most sideboard cards are interactive in their nature right they are trying to be uh super efficient and super powerful so you'll often hear about um mulliganing to sideboard cards and i'm sure we'll touch on that in a minute as well but it's about you know finding these cards that do um you know disenchant classic card one and a white destroy target artifact or enchantment Perfect. So, if you've got white cards in your deck because you're playing, you know, mono-white Heliod life gain, then you would bring those cards in and you would disenchant the Fires of Invention the very first chance you would get. And so, it's about just identifying that I can disrupt his game plan while still pushing mine forwards. And that's the, uh, I, I guess, level three sideboarding is not to over-sideboard. So, uh, yes. I played in... it's. It's unfortunately not a deck, uh, a viable deck in the format anymore. But uh, in modern, I played a lot. And no, I'm not going to talk about KCI Joel. Uh, I, I played a lot of <laughs> Affinity, right? And uh, it was uh, similar to Living End, where it was kind of an all-in deck. It was a, a hyperlinear, aggressive deck using um, artifact creatures and, and artifact synergies. And uh, the deck's been around for a really long time. It's got some really smart people that have uh, worked on the deck. And one of the uh, one of the things that came out of it was bring in more than four or five cards in, in the sideboard. Rely on your your hyper-aggressive, really powerful strategy. You don't want to dilute your deck, right? You want you still want your deck to function uh, as as a you know as a competitive magic deck. Because there's no point going, oh I stop what my opponent 
did for you know six turns but then i ran out of sideboard cards or they you know i disrupted them i interrupted them my sideboard cards were enough to slow them down but they eventually got there they ground me out uh because i couldn't kill them in time so there's a couple of reasons that could happen uh and over sideboarding is one so if you're looking at a a matchup where it's like i'm gonna bring in 13 cards against this 13 of my 15 cards it's probably such a bad matchup that i would probably contemplate i would really seriously think about not bothering to dedicate any sideboard slots to that card to that particular deck going look i just can't beat it i'm gonna hope i don't get paired against it or uh if that's going to be the most popular deck in the metagame then maybe i'd rethink my choices but it's a (laughs) it's a delicate balance uh and it is very difficult you do have to have sort of good format knowledge uh to be able to do that but uh you you want to make sure that your deck still functions and a trap a really common trap and hot tip number six i guess um is there are hands that look really really good because they've got multiple sideboard cards in them but they're not actually functional hands so if i have a if i've got my eldrazi tron hand and i look at it and i've got a a a tormod's crypt and a uh a relic of progenitus and I've lost game one. I'm on the play. I'm, you know, I'm going to dump both those bad boys on, on turn one. But, you know, I've got, uh, my, my other five cards are two land and three reality smashes. Then that's actually a really, really terrible hand. And I should mulligan. So mulliganing to your sideboard cards is important, uh, especially in particular formats where, you know, you really want that ley line of the void or you really want that stony silence or you really want the, the disenchant for the Jeskai fires or whatever it might be. But um, you also, it's really important and it's really difficult, even, you know, even for someone who's played a lot of magic to send a, a hand back uh, that has a, you know a number of your sideboard cards, but it's not actually functional. So I think that's a real skill and something that comes with experience. I agree. And I think that the other side of that is even more common, where you draw your opening seven and you go, this in a normal situation, my game one, this is a great hand, right? It does everything I want. It's got my lands, it's got my spells, but it has none of my interaction. It has none of these big sideboard cards that, you know, the silver bullet in the matchup, right? Exactly, yeah. right? You're playing control and you need to have a early three mana sweeper to get rid of all these mono red creatures. And if you look at it and you've got two card draw spells and a counter spell and a couple of, you know, you've got a bunch of lands, and you're like, oh, this is great. I know exactly what I'm going to do. You'll get run over because you brought those sideboard cards in for a reason. You brought them in because they fundamentally change the way that these games play out and you need them. And you need to have a way to get to them. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to start with them in your hand, but you probably want to. In, if you look at a sideboard card and you go, oh, well, that doesn't really do anything, then you goofed and you shouldn't have brought it in because it, you know, it needs to fundamentally change exactly what's going on. And so, like, I will look at a disenchant in my hand and go, cool, it's turn three. If Chewie doesn't play a Fires of Invention until turn six, I don't mind because I know that at some point this card is going to do what I need it to do and it's going to fundamentally change what happens to this game. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's really correct. So, And with a London Mulligan, 
you don't get punished as severely for searching for your sideboard cards. So absolutely, uh, yeah, uh, sideboarding is actually easier now that we we have the new Mulligan rule. So there's a whole another episode, or at least a segment of a podcast about not being afraid of Mulligan. Uh, and I think that's uh, it's a difficult lesson to learn, and and one that took me a little while. So it's a uh, you know if somebody says you know how often should you Mulligan, I would say you know a lot more than you do. <laughs> uh, would be my default answer in the dark for you know the majority of players. So it's uh, uh, it's yeah it, really interesting. So um, kind of the next level, level three or level four, we're up to with um, mm-hmm. with with the fundamentals of, of mulliganing. Oh, sorry, mulliganing. That's no the fundamentals <laughs> nope, of nope, sideboarding. Nope. I'll take a yep. mulligan on that last uh, last statement. Um, is reacting to what you think your opponent will be doing and this comes with a little bit of format and deck knowledge uh that's why it's a you know that higher level so mm. i got an example here okay yeah yeah okay uh, so i think we'll- i know what it might be but i'll yeah. uh if if not i'll use it as a second example so all right so we were talking about living in before right yep. and i was talking about the fact that i know you were going to bring in all your graveyard hate against me now my, as I said at the time, my, my level one play is to bring in all my reactive spells that I know will kill your graveyard hate, right? And at which point I'm then trying to force through my primary combo. Or I can look to do something completely different and not use my graveyard at all. So there is an option with living end now where you just take out all of the living ends entirely and you switch them for a card called Crashing Footfalls and you can cascade into a bunch of four fours. So there's an option where you literally just go, you're bringing in all these cards against me to kill my game plan. I don't care because it's not my game plan anymore. I'm just going to be fair and beat you on a different axis. And I will see that you've mulliganed to five and you go turn one towards crypt, relic of progenitus. And I go, cool story. And I don't care because that's no longer my game plan. And, and that's when I, that's the stuff I really enjoy because you have this mini game, this cat, this game of cat and mouse where it's a, uh, yeah, it's really part of the gamesmanship that is uh, inherent in Magic, uh, but it's at that extra level, and I, I, I personally do really enjoy that that thought process. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's part of building a sideboard as well. So, and it actually leads into one of the sort of advanced topics that we flagged, which is a transformational sideboard. Mm-hmm. So, for the for the folks at home, Joel. Uh, I think you've illustrated what a transformational sideboard is fairly well with um, with replacing living in with crashing footfalls, where you go from a uh, a deck that is you you know reliant on the graveyard to to one that that isn't. You fundamentally change up your strategy. Correct. Other examples throughout Magic's history are you know the the fairies deck from the Lawn Standard uh, would go from a uh, a tempo-based disruptive fairies deck with spell stutter sprite, which is a counter spell on a body, and Vendillion Click, which is a uh, a hand disruption spell on a body, to like a hard bitter blossom-based control deck where it would it would land a bitter blossom and then it would just use removal and counter spells and discard and just make one one tokens every turn. And even though it was using the same cards, it was the same deck. You know, it was still you know the blue black fairies deck that everybody loved or loathed during that um, during that period, but it would fundamentally change its game plan. It would 
and it was about identifying the important cards in the matchup. It's like, oh, I'm playing against this aggressive deck. I'm going to bring in all of my cheap removal and I'm just going to, you know, overcome them with uh, these 1-1 flyers. Or I'm playing, you know, the, the deck, yeah, fundamentally changes. And there's some combo decks over the journey where they just change up their combo, similar to uh, the, uh, the Living End example that you gave. And it's something that's actually fairly rare in, in magic, in competitive magic, but uh, it's something that's really interesting and it only generally happens with the hyper-focused, uh, either aggressive or combo decks. I was about to say exactly that. You'll find that it tends to be with decks that are super, super strong and fight on a very specific axis in game one and then look to pivot really hard out of that in games two and three. So, look, fully, you know, sometimes they'll talk, you'll hear people talk about transformational sideboards in mid-range decks. And what they mean is that they add two more six drops and they cut two two drops or vice versa, right? It's kind of is, but it's also... Not really no. transformational. No. They're they're shifting on a on a scale from you know a six to an eight or an eight to a six or something like that. You know, it's 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 a little bit of a difference. Whereas like fully transformational, like I was talking about with Living End, is I go from being a ten to a three and just pivoting completely and changing the the entire structure of the game. And the the beauty of that is that then let's say we get to game three, right? Chewie wins game two, sadly. Um, you know, he gets down his chalice on zero. And, and it doesn't matter what cas- you do, yes. Doesn't, none of my cascade spells <laughs> do anything anymore. So, sad old cracker over here. But then in game three, what do you do, Chewie? Am I on living end or am I on crashing footfalls? Well, that's when the game within the game starts. And that's when it gets really enjoyable. And, you know, sometimes you, you, you just have to go with your instinct. And sometimes you just have to back in your own game plan. Absolutely. So, and again, that comes down to, you know, you don't want to then go, oh, I need to bring in sideboard cards for both options because then you've diluted your own game plan. So, you, you have to make a decision. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. Yep. So, you've got to back yourself. And I think, you know, there's the, you know, fortune favors the brave or, or the bold or whatever the, the saying is. So, you've just got to kind of go with it. And that that double bluffing and, and that game of cat and mouse is something that's... um really enjoyable and and something that i something that i really enjoy with the game so i think if you really want to get deep on that just as a like super mind game thing just i've never done this but there are people that will take their entire sideboard and shuffle it into their deck (laughs) yeah and then pull 15 cards out, and then they'll pull 15 cards out and so it's it's actually interesting because there've been there've been times where i've done not exactly that but i've done similar things so i was playing at the RPTQ in modern during the Hogak period. And I would actually grab my sideboard and then just stop and I would watch my opponent. And when when you're playing a super, again, Hogak graveyard-based deck, in case you weren't around (laughs) in 2019, didn't last very long, got banned very quickly. The deck was incredibly busted and heaps and heaps of fun. But, you know, only for me. But basically, you could just look at what your opponents were doing and how quickly they were. People people snapped their sideboard up because, you know, they knew what they were bringing in immediately. And I could judge how much interaction I needed to bring in against people based on 
how many cards I could see them pulling out. So, there is some stuff that you can do. If body you, language is a, uh, yeah, a good thing bo- there Yeah, body language well. is a thing. But I would, I would literally look because people will pull out their, their cards and they'll start like putting them face down in front of them. And you can go, there's two, there's three, there's four lane lines. Okay, cool. And because I knew what people, the common strategies were against the deck I was playing, it let me spend, you know, 10 or 15 seconds just observing what people were doing and then make decisions based on that. Yeah, I'm not saying that I was great at it or I got it right. I got kind of stomped in that competition, but like that's neither here nor there. The, the it's an interesting the, exercise though, right? The, the strategy is sound and it was something that I'd never done before and I'd heard people talking about and I decided to really kind of try and it was it was an interesting experiment. So, there are, there are definitely, a, there's a lot to be gained from this seemingly innocuous 15 extra cards that you've got yeah. sitting to the side of your playmat. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think, um, yeah, while we're on the topic of, like, transformational sideboards, I guess the mm-hmm. the the opposite of that, like, completely pivot in a 180. Yeah. And something that's in the current standard, the Theroth Beyond Death um, Eldraine standard at the moment, is a wish sideboard, what's called a wish board. Um, so there's a... Um, the Fae of Wishes, uh, the uh, the adventure sorcery of that is granted. And um, we've been using the modern example of Eldrazi Tron. It has uh, Khan, the Great Creator, uh, where you're, you have cards in your main deck that allow you to go to your sideboard and, and, and have access to those cards. And the, the Wish gets its name from, and Fae of Wishes uh, harkens back. There's an original cycle from an older set, I can't remember which, where there was a, a cycle of wishes. So Living Wish let you get a creature from your sideboard. Cunning Wish got a uh, an instant. Burning Wish got a sorcery. Yeah, uh, yeah sorcery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so on. So um, the Black Wish let you get any card, but then you lost a bunch of life. And um, I don't know what the White Wish does because I don't think it was very good. Because it's white. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> not not worth mentioning. So, Correct. Um, so that's that's actually really interesting, and and anybody playing during this era will be really aware of the um, the the Fay of Wishes um, strategy. Uh, the Team of Clover deck that you mentioned earlier, Cracker, uh, utilizes this card, and I've I've had some success with the uh, the Eldrazi Tron deck playing Khan the Great Creator. And it lets you go it lets you have, you know, a whole bunch of unique cards. So normally when you build a sideboard, and maybe when I finish this tangent, we'll um we'll talk about sideboard compos- composition a little. Mm-hmm. The you would have a whole bunch of unique cards in, in your deck. So my um my modern sideboard is like 13 unique cards, which is quite unusual. Um, but I could play four Khan the Great Creator and effectively have access to my sideboard cards for a particular matchup in game one. Now, that meant that, you know, I've got I've got a, a really powerful engine that I can use with some of the cards in the sideboard, and I've got access to them on, in game one. But the downside is when I'm thinking, I, I have to back that strategy in. So I can't, you know, bring in four Leyline of the Void, two Tormod's Crypt, and four Relic of Progenitus against uh, graveyard-based strategies because I just don't have those numbers of cards. So the Wish sideboard is something you'll hear people talk about and you may play with or against um, in the current standard. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that. But I think 
something that's you know worth ending on because we are uh, we have been chatting for a little while. Yes. But sideboard competition. So taking it back again through the lens of a of a new player, you've got you've got your deck that you've um, you know you built yourself or you've you bought a challenger deck and you've you know you, you want to go to your first FNM or you go oh, I'm going to play some best of three in arena and give this sideboard thing a go but you've got no idea what you're going to face what are some of the fundamentals regardless of format regardless of metagame what sort of cards do you want in your sideboard now we've given some examples you know specific cards as we've chatted along. So people probably picked up a few things, but I think it's worth just going through what some of the key components of a sideboard would be. So what, what sort of cards, what, uh, what effects would you want in your sideboard if you were building a sideboard completely in the dark? So I would, first of all, want to have some idea of some of the decks I'm going to face against, right? So you need to have some understanding of what you're going to run up against. But but completely blind, you would just think about the powerful different types of cards that exist, right? So I would look at every different type of card that there is and how am I going to interact with it? If you bring in planeswalkers, how am I going to beat planeswalkers? Do I need to have a murderous rider so I can kill one? Do I just understand that oh, my, my creatures are going to be my removal spell for that and I can ignore it? Okay, great. What about enchantments, right? How can I beat an enchantment? Is there a card that I can put in my sideboard that will let me do that? Same with artifacts, same with creatures, right? Instants and sorceries are, are tricky, you know, unless you're playing blue and you've got some counter magic or you're playing black and you go... They're going to play an uncounterable spell that wins them the game effectively, right? Yep. How do I how do I interact with that? What what are my avenues to make sure that I don't just lose on the spot to this effect? And so I would go through and say, okay, in the colours that I have, and we can talk about colour pies in another episode about strengths and weaknesses. But you would identify the different things that you can do against each of these different card types, and look, a lot of it will be built into your deck. You'll have removal spells, right? Yeah. Every every deck has, you know, removal spells, whether it be, you know, damage-based removal or whether it be, like, direct um, removal through, like, destroy target creature or, like, a banishing light type effect where you exile it. All the different colours have different ways of getting rid of some type of permanence. Some do it better than others. And so, that's why you'll have, you know, different colours and decks. Here's my own tangent. But that's going in completely blind. So that's what I'd look at. I'd be going, okay, if my opponent plays an enchantment that fundamentally changes the game and it becomes about that enchantment, enchantment what do i do to beat that if my opponent plays uh, a giant planeswalker how do i beat that giant's planeswalker what are my what are my avenues there and then i would think about how often i need to draw that card right because then and that, that would inform the numbers that exactly you would have right. yeah exactly right so there are you know certain things that you just go i need I need like one of this effect because it just kind of bolsters my primary game plan. Or you'd go, I need like a bunch of this effect because, you know, it's sweepers against mono red or, you know, white weenie or something like that, where I fundamentally need to not get beaten down in the first four turns of the game. And so if I need to have that effect a lot, then I need three or four of those in my sideboard to make sure that on average, I'm going to draw those cards when I need them. It's a it's a real art, isn't it? So it's a it's a really tricky balancing act and, yeah. and working out like and the other thing that you'll see in sideboard cards a lot are gonna be cards that will interact with multiples of a 
uh, different types. So you'll see cards like, um, we were talking about Disenchant before, and you'd go, okay, well, this hits enchantments and artifacts. So I don't need to dedicate my very precious few sideboard slots to having a artifact hate card and an enchantment hate card. I've got them bundled into one. And so I would look for specific effects that are powerful against multiples of whatever my opponents are doing so that if I play uh, artifact deck one round and then an enchantment deck the next one I don't have to lose to one because I didn't have an effect that I only had shatters right I only had cards that destroy target artifact as opposed to something that does both so versatility is uh, is something you would look for when you Absolutely. were uh, yeah trying to fill a sideboard slot, and I, I do agree with that because you only do get fifteen slots, and um, if a metagame is healthy, uh, there is many many uh, different decks that you can face. So I, I agree with that. I I think if I was going to a modern tournament, if I'd never played modern uh, at a competitive level before, I would have a way to deal with artifacts, a way to deal with graveyards and a way to interact with uh, creatures and uh, ways to interact with control decks. That would be, so those four card types, whatever they are within, you know, your deck colors and strategy, they would be my starting point. I think, you know, you need a way to kill a goblin guide, but you need a way to get around a counter spell you need a way to deal with artifacts and you need a way to, um, you know, stop Beat can't great the creator. Beat, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, there is a, um, yeah, and it really is dependent on on what you're up against. And the best thing I can, the best, absolute best advice, like I'm not sure what number we're up to, but sort of the last hot tip I'll leave you on is practice. Arena is a great tool. Use the best of three on Arena. Uh, you'll be a better magic player, I believe. This is personal opinion time. Um, playing best of three than just jamming best of one. Best of one has a place, don't get me wrong, um, where you can just jump on and, and play games and it's really fun. But if you want to level up as a magic player, I, I recommend uh, playing best of three because um, you have to think about a match rather than a game and you've, um, your deck is 75 cards, not 60. So you, you're expanding your uh your range uh and at your ability to adapt which will make you a better magic player overall so um yeah so that's kind of my parting thought if you like um any any parting thoughts from from you there cracker don't be scared to experiment right and particularly when you're playing in you know like arena or, or something like that where it's you know low free. stakes yeah absolutely you can look at lists and not understand why things are in there so either ask questions or make changes right like you will encounter different decks and you will have a different play style than the person who built it so you know that goes for the for the entire game at your local store there'll be things that you will gravitate towards and back yourself right you'll make mistakes you'll lose horribly and who cares right like it is magic and the greatest players in the world lose horribly all the time as well so understand that that's a part of it but you will fundamentally become much better at the game when you understand why cards are there and yeah just try things yeah don't be don't be afraid um you you know you've got to you've got to try it and you've got to uh, you've got to fail <laughs> to succeed i guess and that's that's Absolutely. not just as that's not a tip on sideboard that's a tip on playing magic and um, like other aspects. But uh, yeah, so uh, what we'll do is also, uh, you know, in the uh, description 
here in the show notes of this episode. We'll put a link to our Discord. Uh, so we've got some, uh, there's, you know, people on there that happily help. So uh, if you're listening to this, you know, future you, um, hello from the past, <laughs> check the check the link in the notes. And if you've got questions about sideboards, particular strategies, jump into our Discord. There'll be somebody there that uh, that can help out. We're more than happy to uh, to uh, help out a fellow Magic player. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me via Twitter, uh, you can get me at ChewyMTG. And Joel is at Joel Hill underscore. Or you can just uh, send us an email at magicbeanscast at gmail.com and, um, and we'll, uh, we'll answer that uh, pretty quickly. Um, I've got those notifications turned on, so I'll, uh, I'll generally get back to somebody in the, in the first day. So, yeah, don't be afraid to ask us some questions. And um, if, you've, uh, if you've had some good experiences or bad experiences with, uh, with, with sideboarding, we'd, uh, we'd like to know as well. So thanks very much for tuning in to this episode. I, ho- I hope that it was useful to you. 